Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Small Biz Gone Viral. I'm your host, Grant LeBeau, co-founder of the coconut energy bar company, Rickaroons. This podcast is all about connecting with fellow small business owners and sharing their personal pandemic experiences, emphasizing vulnerability, transparency, and honesty as we assess the real-world impacts of the pandemic on small businesses and the humans who run them. Today's guest is Rachel Bernier-Green, the founder of Lane's Bake Shop, a Chicago social enterprise baked goods manufacturing company committed to catalyzing wealth in South and West Side communities in Chicago. We will talk about the importance of using a company to serve humans, scaling the company to create ownership opportunities and generational wealth for Lane's Bake Shop employees, and hiring from chronically unemployed communities such as re-entering citizens, recovering substance abusers, and the formerly homeless. All that and more in just a few minutes, but first, our fun fact. Yay! The U.S. is now averaging 3 million vaccines administered daily. To achieve herd immunity for the 330 million or so Americans, between 500 and 600 million total shots need to be given. With 180 million shots already in American arms, the current rate of 3 million per day puts us on pace for roughly 100 million shots per month and to achieve herd immunity in the middle of summer. For businesses that depend on summer sales to buoy them through the fallow winter months, the exact timing may be the difference between surviving and folding. It's time now, as always, for our recurring segment of historical context, facts and figures. We begin with COVID, focusing on three different categories, new daily cases, daily death rate, and total vaccine shots. In spite of 180 million vaccines already having been administered, the number of new daily cases has actually risen three weeks in a row, up to 68,000 new cases each day, due largely in part to more infectious variants, the relaxing of state guidelines, and an increase in travel, particularly for spring break. The death rate has fallen six weeks in a row to 770 per day, though that number does tend to lag a few weeks behind the daily case rate, so it wouldn't be surprising to see it rise in the next couple of weeks. The good news, though, is that in spite of the rise in cases, the total number of active cases in the U.S. is at 6.8 million, roughly 2% of the population, which is a four-month low. The stock market continues to plod on into record territory, extending the fastest 13 months of growth in 90 years. Unemployment hasn't seen a significant change since it dropped below a million new weekly filers back in early August. Last week, 744,000 Americans filed for first-time unemployment claims, a number that, and you've heard me say this before, would have been astronomical literally any time in American history prior to the pandemic, but due to the pandemic, has been normalized. So, for those of you listening well into the future, I'll sum things up like this. As of April 13th, 2021, Americans are exhausted but hopeful with an end to this pandemic in sight. My guest today is Rachel Bernier-Green, a self-described recovering accountant turned serial social entrepreneur. Her passion is building scalable, for-profit businesses that can change the world. Rachel is currently focusing on growing her company, Lane's Bake Shop, maker of mouth-watering, decadent cookies, brownies, and cakes. We'll chat about her triple bottom line, profit, people, and planet. She will share why investing locally is so important and how small businesses can reduce recidivism and affect big change. Here's my interview with Rachel Bernier-Green. Rachel, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I am really excited to have you on the show because like we were talking about before we started recording, you have a ton of experience presenting in front of other people on so many different uh, topics in a way that 
very few of my guests have. You've actually guest lectured at uh, University of Chicago School of Business, uh, their booth school, right? So not a guest lecture, but I've served, been invited to serve on a couple of panels and have spoken to students, um, which I guess in a way is guest lecturing. Uh, well, we're, we're definitely going to get into that. But to start things off, tell us just a, a little bit about you and how Lane's Bakery got started. Yeah, so um, Lane's is a family name. I think that's the question I probably get the most. You know, if you're Rachel, who is Lane's and why is this the name of the company? And so the quick story there is that my grandfather, Lane, he um, grew up on the south side of Chicago and he's always telling us stories about that. And he kind of inspired the mission behind the company. And then my mom, Elaine, taught me to bake and she homeschooled me. So she actually taught me fractions with the brownie recipe. And so my family always jokes that both of those things stuck um, because I became a baking accountant and my name is Rachel Elaine. So that was the uh, story behind the company. And then most recently, my sister uh, just had a baby and uh, her middle name is Elena. So now we have Lane number four in the family. So a, a, a true family name. Yeah, yeah. So that's where the name came from. And um, the short story of my background is that uh, my background is in finance and accounting and operations. So I actually use all of those things uh, with lanes, but this was not quite how I originally planned my career out. Right. And you you, you have a, a formal background in terms of your, your college training, and then you yeah. also utilize that training prior to starting lanes? Yeah, so I have um, degrees in accounting and finance and a master's in taxation um, and a degree in technology and management. And then I worked um, in financial services and big four accounting um, before pivoting and going uh, to work for Lane's full time. So tell us about that that pivot. Um, so essentially, uh, my job was kind of soul sucking. I did... Uh, <laughs> Tax accounting for um, private equity and hedge funds, and the environment was pretty toxic, so it wasn't great. Um, and I was working a ton of hours. I didn't see my husband or my family, um, and eventually it just like started to take a toll on me physically and mentally. And I got sick, and my doctors were like, "Yeah, you need to leave this job." And I was like, Psh, "You know, I will keep working um, like a dummy." And so I did until my health uh, said, "You know, what? absolutely, you have to absolutely take a." A leave. And so I took a leave of absence and I had every intention of uh, going back. Of course. And then after I had time to like sleep and come to my senses, I thought maybe that's not a great plan. And so I'd started lanes um, a few years before and I had never intended to work full time in the company uh, at that point. Um, but that was what I ended up doing. And so when you say that you ended up moving uh, to, to full time, were you the original founder of Lanes? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I founded Lanes, uh, what was it, my second year in public accounting? And that was more of as, like, as like a side gig? Yeah. It was really um, so I'd been baking my whole life with my mom and my grandmother. Um, and it was really a stress relief. So because I was so stressed at work, instead of going home and sleeping, I would go home and bake things. And I was baking more than my husband and I could eat. So I would just take things to work. So you, I feel like that's kind of the, the classic story of you have a, a passion, you share it with friends, and then eventually those friends start going, you should really turn this into a business. Well, you know, I got that a lot. And I would always tell people, and this might offend some people in their businesses, but that that's a really dumb reason to start a business just because you happen to like doing something. Um, yeah, that's no, that's not a business model. And so I was pretty uh, resistant to it at first um, until when I was still working part-time on lanes, we did um, a pop-up event in our neighborhood and someone came and tasted our stuff and they knew um, like we had we're educating people about the ingredients we were using and things like that. And they said, hey, you know, Whole Foods is building a store in the south side of Chicago and they're looking for um, new vendors. You should go out, you know, and meet them. And I laughed because I'd never even worked in a restaurant. So I was like, you know, I have no business um, talking to anyone at Whole Foods or doing anything like that. Um, but we did and it went great. And that was how we landed in the um, our first Whole Foods store. And so we were already in Whole Foods um, I think for about a year, year and a half before I ended up going full-time in lanes. And were, did you start off with just that, that one store or did it, did it scale at all? 
Yeah, so we um, originally the plan was that we would start off in three stores and this was a year before um, that new store opened. So we were able to kind of get in ahead of the curve. Um, but we one store ordered first and then we went to three um, and then we worked our way up from there to all the Chicago stores, all the Illinois stores, and eventually we were servicing the entire Midwest. Um, yeah. And we were had but just like uh, done our labels. They were bilingual because we were uh, working on expanding to uh, the Canadian Whole Foods stores that are a part of the Midwest region. So it was really exciting. And how many how many Whole Foods stores was that? Oh, that's a good question. I think it's like fifty seven. Okay. Wow. Wow. That, that's. That's quite a bit. And what was the, what's the shelf life on your cookies? So because we don't use preservatives, we use freezing as our method of preservation. And so once our cookies are baked, you can freeze them for up to four months. And so they were distributed, frozen, and then the stores would just thaw them um, and they were good to go. And were they sold in the bakery section? Yeah, so they were sold in the International Cookie Station where you can kind of um, pick your own mix of cookies. Got it. Got it. Okay. So you go, you go to, to the glass basically and say, mm -hmm. Hey, I want that one and that one and that one and that one. Exactly. And if it were me, probably. And that one and that one and that <laughs> one. Yeah. We had six flavors. So we got a lot of, a lot of variety there. So heading into 2020, let's go ahead and, and set, set the baseline here. Kind of what kind of revenue did you do in 2019? And then what were you expecting for 2020? So in 2019, um, at that point, we had three years of our compounded annual growth rate was 85%. So we'd gone from pretty tiny, we were scaling, um, we had just reached the high 300,000s in 2019. Um, we'd opened a retail location in 2019. So we were planning the Canadian expansion. Our second biggest customer um, was tripling their locations um, for 2020. Um, so we were really excited. We'd never been in as solid, solid of a place as we were at the end of 2019, heading into 2020. Wow. And the expansion to Canada is no small feat. And because like, like no. you said explicitly earlier, you had to add a bilingual aspect to it because that's a, a packaging requirement in Canada. Yeah. So the labeling requirements are different. All of the labels have to be in French and English, but also the way um, that some of the ingredients have to be denoted. And then there's a lot of customs paperwork. Um, so it's a bit of a process. And I assume you had to hire somebody to do all of that for you. No, I did it all myself. Did you really? Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Retrospect, maybe not the greatest yeah. plan because I did not have the bandwidth to do so. But yeah, I did it myself. Oh, do you speak French? Um, no, not anywhere near fluent, um, but my husband and his family do. Uh, so I was able to um, kind of Google translate my way in and I knew enough to know whether or not this was kind of on track. And then I just had to look at it. Oh my gosh. Wow. Uh, what a, what a fun benefit that I'm sure you did not uh, know you would utilize when you married him. I had no idea. Yeah, he always jokes that there are a lot of those things. He's like, is this the only reason you married me? These are unintended benefits. <laughs> right, right. Surprise perks. Okay, so he headed into 2020, we're thinking we're we're going to be doing about three quarters of a million dollars. Uh, talking, yeah. uh, what about your staffing? Yeah, so we, at the, um, in 2019, we'd added um, more staff. We had uh, 11 people. Um, Five were full-time, and then we had um, some part-time team members, and then we also had an apprenticeship program um, that we were running, and we had six people in the apprenticeship program. Um, and the thought was that we were, that was part of our social mission. And so we were training them um, because for the expansion we were planning in 2020, that we would have people that were trained and ready to go to step into those jobs as we continued to grow. And do you want to talk just a little bit more about what, what your social mission is? Because I know you kind of have, yeah. a, have a, a double bottom line where you're not just measured by, by profitability in terms of dollars. Exactly. So we um, measure our profitability on the financial side, on our environmental impact, and then on our social impact. And on the social impact side, um, my goal is to uh, catalyze wealth in the hardest hit communities in Chicago. And so we work with people um, really with the focus on reentering citizens um, so that we can provide 
uh, living wage jobs that actually drive down recidivism. They keep people out of the justice system and give them a chance to break the cycle of poverty um, for their families. And so we're planning to convert um, the company to, I'm planning to transfer ownership to my employees through employee stock ownership program buyout um, so that my employees actually own a piece of the company because that can generate wealth um, much more than just you know our 401k plan or paying people fair wages. So I'm really excited um, as we're rebuilding uh, to get back to that. Right. And so to, to sum that up, or maybe put it in a, in a little bit of uh, more layman's terms, I believe. Oh, yes, I definitely. <laughs> yeah. A lot of. Uh, so when you, you talk know, about, when, you, when you talk about like recidivism, you're talking about uh, like recently released. Or... So, yeah. So recidivism is um, when someone who's committed a crime and then they've gone to jail, they've been released. Um, recidivism is when uh, they re-engage in criminal activity. And so data tells us that one of the most significant things you can do to reduce recidivism is to give people quality alternatives to crime. Um, so quality jobs are the by and far like the most significant um, factor. And so my thought was if I can um, kind of intervene and provide opportunities so that people aren't uh, re-engaging in criminal activity, then it has kind of the double whammy of uh, reducing crime and violence um, in South and West Side communities while breaking the cycle of poverty uh, for these individuals. So then, you know, their kids um, or cousins or whoever aren't faced with the same choices, um, you know, that they were dealing with. Right. Huge, huge ripple effects. It's not just about the yeah. individual because the individual is a part of a broader, broader community. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Shirley Chisholm uh, said one time that um, she was a catalyst for change. And so that's kind of a model that I've carried with me that I want our business to not just positively impact, you know, the people that were immediately in our orbit, but that everything that we're doing has kind of a catalytic impact. And is there a way, is, is there an official connection between you and uh, a release program or how do you go about like specifically targeting and, and hiring from that population? Yeah, so we um, have partnered with um, a variety of nonprofits um, throughout the city uh, to help us um, you know, find employees, especially for the apprenticeship program. And our biggest partner in those efforts um, has been an organization called Chicago Cred. And so we, let's see, maybe two years we were working with them. It's hard to, yeah, it's hard to say. When mm -hmm. you're growing that fast, things get kind of blurry. <laughs> um, but I love them because they have a really holistic approach. Um, so they work with people, they provide job training, they provide um, financial literacy training, they provide cognitive behavioral therapy. So it's a really um, wraparound service. So when they're bringing, um, you know, guys to us, we know that they've done some level of work already and they have a good support system in place. So if someone is struggling with something um, that we have additional resources, we can call in and say, hey, you know, this is a great guy. He's doing great work, but we know that he's struggling in XYZ area. Like what, how do we show up for him? Um, and yeah, they are amazing partners in that sense. So basically you're like the opposite of the, like the quintessential, um, big bad corporation that is just trying to squeeze every last dollar you're out, out of their out of out of everything including their employees you're working to essentially trying to pay them more than the market might otherwise dictate so that they have a livable wage which have you found that to be better business as well because you have a um, higher like higher retention yeah so it absolutely is better business um I was introduced actually by one of my mentors at Whole Foods to the conscious capitalism movement. And um, as part of that movement, I was introduced to Jack Stack and the great game of business. Um, and so he's an entrepreneur and he writes these books about how if you use something called open book management to really engage your employees into um, the, the numbers behind the business. So instead of saying, okay, hey, I'm keeping this tight to my chest. This is what you make and you know, be happy with it all of my team members, they know how the company is performing financially. Um, there's a lot of transparency. They all know how much I make. They know when we have issues that we need to resolve. And what I found is that um, it drastically increases retention. Um, employees report higher uh, job satisfaction rates, but it also, um, my favorite part of it is, is that it um, 
kind of incentivizes employees to think of ways to improve the company in ways that you generally wouldn't, that they're taking ownership um, over things. And so I developed a system a couple years ago where if someone came up with an idea and you know it saved us X amount of dollars per month, then I would pay that out to them as a bonus. And so like people get wildly creative um, at how to improve things. Um, and people, you know, they could shave 20% off this process or 30% off this process, all because they knew what was going on. Yeah, so I am a huge advocate now. I think on my bookshelf, I probably have three copies of The Great Game of Business and then like three or four other books um, from Jack Stack and Bo Burlingham because I just give them out to people um, because I really think it's a fantastic way to run a business. Um, and I'm really excited to be able to implement more uh, principles from The Great Game of Business into my company. So after listening listening to you talk for 20 seconds, it's not a really a surprise that people want to put you in front of students and <laughs> larger groups. Um, what are, what's the subject? Just and and be, we're we're sort of up against a a, a, a time restriction here, but uh, can you briefly tell us about kind of who uh, how how you made that connection to Booth, and then sort of what are your what's the subject matter um, and what are you trying to pass along uh, to the to those groups? Um, so the subject matter has ranged from uh, regenerative agriculture um, to the impacts of poverty um, on small businesses uh, and communities um, and the impact of uh, race and socioeconomics on uh, those communities as well. Um, so that particular panel um, that you're referring to, uh, I was invited by um, an attorney that I was working with um, in a program that they have at the school. And so she invited me and then a couple different entrepreneurs. And I think I was able to speak with that um, group uh, maybe two or three times. Um, and then there's other people because the University of Chicago is kind of in my backyard uh, that we've worked with over the years. And they've invited me to come, you know, talk to um, at different events or to their students. Uh, and generally it's about uh, being a business owner um, a woman of color operating on the South side and now the West side of Chicago and kind of what that means, um, particularly when it comes to our social mission and what we're trying to do. Right. You stand apart from the, from, from the crowd in terms of, uh, blending the, tri essentially the triple bottom line, right. Environmental, right. social, and, uh, and then your traditional monetary. Yeah. So with that, Let's go ahead and move into our mid-COVID set where we'll talk about the real-world impacts that the yeah. pandemic has had on you, your business, your employees, et cetera. But before we do, it's time, as always, for our guests, Unsponsor. And Unsponsor is a small business that is doing everything right. They don't know they're getting this shout-out, but they just deserve one. So, Rachel, tell us, who is today's show not brought to us by? So today's show is not brought to us by Janie's Mill. Janie's Mill is a farm um, in central Illinois. They grow organic um, uh, grains. Uh, they grow heirloom grains and they practice regenerative farming practices. And the reason that I wanted to shout them out is one, they have great quality products. Um, Harold, the owner and Jill, the manager of the mill, which is really cool because you don't run into a lot of women that manage mills um, are absolutely fantastic people. Uh, we use their products in our kitchen and most recently, uh, we received a grant uh, to get a new roll-in oven, and we could not afford to get it shipped to Chicago. And Harold, the owner of Janie's Mill, actually took his truck while he was out on a delivery route, picked up this 4,000-pound oven, and brought it to our production facility on the west side of Chicago. And then without a forklift, um, helped my husband, sister, and brother, and I somehow finagle this thing into our production facility. So we're huge fans of Janie's Mill over at Lane's Bake Shop. And you can find them online at www.janiesmill.com. And that's J-A-N-I-E-S. And you can also find them on social media at Janie's Mill. They have fantastic feeds. One of my favorite, um, one of my favorite companies to check out their socials. And if we were to go to, to Janie's Mill right now, what's some what what's the 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 product that we should start off with? Oh, um, I would start off with some of their flowers. So they have an einkorn flower. Um, they have a rye flower that I love. Try that rye flower, which has a naturally lower gluten content and brownies or cookies, and you'll get a great texture. Um, and it'll add some um, some notes to your flavor profile that are really unexpected, but wow. very delicious. That is a, a 
A literal pro tip right there. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into our mid-COVID set and talk about, again, the real-world impacts that the pandemic has had on small business, specifically yours. So let's, as we all generally do, uh, let's let's adhere to our timeline and start in mid-March and, and talk about what was the first impact that you remember feeling from the pandemic? Yes. So I will stick to those parameters and back up just a little bit because okay. our COVID impact was tied to something else. So in January, I decided to close down our retail business, focus entirely on wholesale, um, which saved us from a lot of the COVID impacts on the retail side. However, at the end of January, the ceiling caved in at our production facility. And so um, we had to do an emergency move across the city. And we just set up in our new location, got licensed, and we're just starting to ship out product again when we got notification that we were losing our biggest customer because we hadn't been able to ship out. And uh, and when you say that the, the ceiling was caving in, was that just out of curiosity, was that your facility or was it a rented facility? It was a rented facility. Okay. And we had issues with that for years. Um, but yeah, so we did this move. We just got up and licensed. We lost our biggest customer because of the shutdown from the ceiling. And then within two weeks of getting licensed in the new place, COVID hit. And so we had one day where we started getting cancellations. So first it was our restaurants that we serviced. Um, we um, did the dessert and pastry menu for local restaurants and cafes. Some of them started closing. And after losing our biggest customer and then our biggest restaurant group closed, then there was a day that we, um, I was in the kitchen trying to figure out how we pull things together. And we had like almost $10,000 in cancellations in one day because we did um, gifts for corporate events and all of a sudden those events were called off. We were doing catering, all of a sudden that was called off. Um, parties, everything. And so uh, that day after kind of those, that cascading effect of kind of craziness, that was the nail in the coffin. And so that was the day I said, hey, you know what, we have to call it. And we shut down, we weren't sure how long we'd be shut down for. Um, and then we did not reopen until uh, last fall. Wow. So when you shut down, it sounds like that was relatively early. Yeah, it was. We, I think because of uh, the events leading up mm -hmm. to the start of the pandemic, we just didn't have the financial capacity um, to withstand those initial shocks from the pandemic. Wow. So not only was there the pandemic, but there was also it's not like you were entering the pandemic from a from a place of strength. Not at all. <laughs> Putting wow. it lightly. Yeah, yeah. And then you, so you had been with Whole Foods for um, six, four years, four years. Yeah, at that point. Mm -hmm. And then they were the ones who basically canceled the contract because of the the disruption in supply chain. Yeah, and so we um, didn't have a contract with them. They don't really contract with right. companies outside of um, like farms, but um, there was that was the nail in the coffin. We had some issues with um, delays in some orders because our freezer at the previous facility, in addition to the roof leaking, which led to the roof caving, um, the freezer that the landlord owned constantly gave out, and so we were always oh, shutting no. out money to fix it. And it wasn't big enough for us to keep more than a week of inventory. And so there were like four or five um, occasions where the freezer gave out and we just lost everything. Um, yeah, our freezer repairman became like one of our favorite people. I still call him to like service things like at my house. But yeah, so then this was kind of like, they're like, you know, we can't just be out of these you know products for this amount of time, which I understood, but it did catch me off guard because we, I just had no idea that was coming. Right. And so not only did you lose the existing business, but you also lost the the thing that you had just put so much time and effort and energy and resources. Yeah, into. that was really hard. Yeah. Did you get uh, labels made? Yeah, I did get labels made. And so, yeah, there was a lot of trashing of labels after all that happened because yeah. we moved locations. And so we had to update them. And so we just printed labels with the updated address that were bilingual, and then we couldn't use any of them. So, yeah. Oh man. So did you uh, did you sell a, a single cookie in Canada ever? Nope. 
Nope, not at all. Uh, and that was pre-pandemic. Um, like a few weeks shy. So like all of this happened within, yeah, within several weeks. What was that like for you mentally? Um, in the midst of it, there, like there wasn't time to crack or to really process things because it was just, you know, how do we stay afloat? How do we stay afloat? How do I save these jobs? Um, but when that day, when I realized that, you know, there is no salvaging this today, and I don't know if there's a way that we will, you know, ever be able to reopen, that's when it hit me and it was uh, incredibly difficult. Um, yeah, because I worked so hard to build something and I thought we were finally in a good place and then it, yeah, all fell apart. Yeah. Well, we're, we're definitely going to come back to that because I think that that, that is, especially because of your social mission, um, maybe one of the most difficult things about this is, is the human, well, I mean, that's what this whole show is about, right? Is like, is right. The, the, the human toll that the pandemic yeah. is taking in, in ways that maybe, um, kind of the, the ripple effects, um, so moving along in, in that timeline, so really early on, sounds you, you decide to kind of shutter things at least for, for a little bit. Um, was that a shared facility that you had or, or your own facility that you decided to close down? Um, so that actually was one of the, our saving graces is that when we moved, we moved into a manufacturing incubator um, that is just designed for food businesses. So we have private kitchen within this kind of broader facility. And so we closed, we had multiple kitchen spaces, we consolidated down to one, and then we closed uh, that space down. And that was closed until... Until when and what was the, the decision-making process like for when to reopen? Um, so I, as we got more information from the CDC um, and after we received our first round of PPP funding, that was when um, I started to see, you know, uh, what we could salvage um, and what made sense to do. There were a lot of things we were doing that really didn't make a lot of sense after you have time to step back and uh, think about them. Um, but yeah, once we had, once those two things happened, um, that's when I decided to kind of move back into things I'd said, uh, the CDC said, if you know, the positive case rate for testing was over 5%, um, that it's not safe to do non-essential, um, manufacturing. And even though we are a food manufacturer, so we did fall under essential manufacturing, I made the decision that until the case rate was under 5%, that we weren't going to reopen, um, most of my employees, whether it was from COVID or something else, uh, lost a family member um, in 2020 anyway. And I wasn't willing to put people at further risk because you know, no one's dying from not having cinnamon rolls. And so even though we technically could have produced, I wasn't comfortable doing so. And so once we hit that threshold and we figured out um, how we can keep people safe, so we purchased masks um, with special filters to give to our employees while they were working and implemented our different COVID protocols. And that's when we said, okay, let's, I didn't have a game plan at that time about exactly how we would rebuild, but that was when I really started to re-engage with the idea. And let's see, I need to, to remember my, my next question, but I, I want to um, ask, what did you spend those four, five, six months sort of doing uh, in between when you shut down the the initial facility or, or kind of put a pin in things? Yeah. Um, the short version is that I spent most of that time getting healthy. Um, so there was kind of the initial mental and physical spiral. Um, and I already uh, struggle with anxiety and depression. And so in a good time, like those can be, you know, a little interesting to deal with. <laughs> But when the world kind of implodes, it was definitely very heavy. And so, um, yeah, I just spent a lot of time getting physically and mentally healthy um, so that I knew I was ready to um, come back and spent a lot of time thinking about what parts of the business didn't serve me or my employees well so that we could ditch those and just move forward with the parts that, um, you know, really made the most sense. Um, and then I spent a ton of time um, building out new infrastructure and systems for the business, which is 
outside of the numbers, that's like where I like to nerd out. And so if there was something that we could automate or we could make more efficient or we could um, systemize something so that it was easier to teach people and give them more autonomy in their work, you name it, I did it. And so I'm still working on building some of those uh, systems, but uh, yeah, that was the exciting part of what I did during the downtime. Do you think that being able to put your time and energy into building something new and streamlining, but preparing for the future, was that something that helped contribute to uh, kind of re rebounding mentally and, re and, re and recovering? Um, in some ways, I was uh, really intentional um, with working with my care team that um, one of the mistakes I made was kind of tying my identity to my work um, that I needed to get into um, a healthy space mentally without working. And so um, there was a period of months where I did not work at all, um, which was extraordinarily difficult for me. Um, but I mean, I realized I was using work as a crutch. And so I had to kind of really dig into that and find out um, how to be whole and uh, restored without work. And once I got to that place, then I slowly started re-engaging with work. And at first it was just part-time. And so we kind of built up to it to make sure that I wasn't um, re-adopting, you know, unhealthy habits that put me in the shape that I was in before. Right. It sounds like for someone like you who comes from, who's obviously like a, a high performer and yeah. in, especially in like the traditional sense, right. having multiple degrees, going and working big four accounting, uh, kind of having these, uh, you know, you're not just like punching, um, you know, clocking in, clocking out like this, a, a lot of identity for a lot of small business owners. And then especially yeah. it sounds like for you is tied up, um, you know, in, in the brand that you have created. Right. I, I feel like that must have been... Um, challenging to say the least to sort of step right. away because so many of I'll say us uh, yeah. have a tendency to measure productivity exclusively by like what you do for that day for the business and obviously right. like well why do we work we work in theory to like as as a a to to make uh, other things possible in the broader schemes of things of our lives so like we can do the things that we want to do and i feel like it's so easy to get kind of caught up in very much so in work is the end-all be-all especially when it is your baby yeah that was one thing um that my therapist in particular was very intentional about was giving me exercises to like if she asked how you know my week was or about something and then I start rattling off things that I did that I thought were productive. She said, no, aside from productivity, you know, right. tell me what you, and I was just like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was a foreign way of thinking to me. Um, and it's still a work in progress, but I'm really grateful that I had the time to do that because like outside of a catastrophic unraveling, I don't know that I would have done that work at this time in my life. Um, and in a lot of ways, I'm really grateful for it because now I have like hopefully the next two thirds of my life to live a much more intentional and abundant life um, at a pace that actually serves me and my employees and my family well. So yeah, there was a, a pretty nice silver lining inside of all the chaos. Yeah, I feel like that, that's such a mature outlook because it's... I feel like maybe this is just, a, I don't know if it's American society or you yeah. know, coming out of, uh, you know, maybe the, the college that you went to or, you know, where we all get or we see it on TV or, or where we get it from. But basically hard working yourself to the bone is somehow viewed as a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a badge of honor. Right. And so sometimes I find myself doing the same thing where I'll just be at the office later than I... I, I could leave an hour earlier, but I'm just there without necessarily being productive at all. And then I'm like, well, why am I here? Am I here to kind of sit? I don't, I don't have yeah. a boss. Am I trying to signal to right. my, am I, am I signaling to myself that I'm yes. working hard? I had like a compulsion to work. And then I would like share that with people like, Ugh, I had to pull an 18 hour day. And like, sometimes I did, but like, if I had worked 
an eight or nine hour day, then I probably would have been a lot more productive and could have gotten that stuff done without pulling, you know, consecutive insane hour days. Um, but yeah, I felt like I, I take, I still take pride in working hard, but I don't take hard or don't take pride in kind of abusing myself uh, for the sake of productivity or to say that, you know, especially with entrepreneurs, I feel like there's this, you know, I'll sleep when I die. You know, you have to have a hustle right. mentality. Mm -hmm. You have to work really hard. And that's true. But there's a lot to be said for working smarter. Right. Um, yeah. And very few people function optimally when you're working 100 hour weeks. Yes. Every study, all the data tells us this and entrepreneurs consistently disregard it. Yep. Yep. I mean, I, th I think there's a, a natural disconnect between humans a bit and reading statistics and then applying them to themselves. I, yeah. Oh, I, I'm not like that. You know, like, yeah. let's all go trade stocks individually because I'm oh smart. <laughs> I'm smarter than the market. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. And I forget what that psychological phenomenon is. But yeah, we often think, oh, well, I'm the exception to the rule. Right. And so that might be the case for most people, but I can push through it. You know, I'll still be optimally productive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's madness. <laughs> Rachel, I, I have to get us back to back to, to talking about lanes because I feel like you and I could just uh, riff on this all day. Very here. True. So back to lanes. Uh, let's talk just briefly about kind of how 2020 ended and and kind of, I guess, bring us up to speed with where we are now. Yeah. Um, so the short version is that 2020 ended, um, our revenues were down 80% from 2019. Um, yeah. So not what any of us had in mind going into 2020. Um, but where we are now is that we've completely changed uh, most of our business models. Um, so I basically, one of the things I did over the summer was take a list of uh, what are all the pain points? What are the things that were really annoying or frustrated me or frustrated the team? And how do we fix those? And so um, we're working on finalizing those things. And uh, right now we're just getting ready to um, step on the gas. So we're focused on rebuilding e-commerce in our um, local restaurant and cafe uh, dessert and pastry food service program. And then also food service for um, some local anchor institutions here in the city. Um, so hospitals, universities, and things like that. Um, and once we um, have reestablished ourselves in those spaces, then we'll reenter the retail space. And when you're reaching out to, especially the the restaurant industry, who's I think been hit about as hard as anybody, yeah. Um, or the, are those conversations? Do you are are those like short term? Hey, do you want to buy these now? Or are, are some of them just reestablishing those relationships with the the goal of kind of like as we all scale back up, then we will fit your you will meet your needs and and produce your pastries and cookies, et cetera. Yeah, so it's a longer term aspect. That's what we were doing before was managing things for restaurants and cafes that were running at full speed. Mm -hmm. um, and so the goal is to do that again, but make it easier for them to um, work with us uh, and also provide more support. Um, so there's uh, like different tools and things that we use internally that I've realized would be useful uh, to those clients. And so we're providing additional resources um, to strengthen their businesses. I mean, because it's good business for right. us, um, but it's also, you know, builds a stronger relationship with them. And when our clients thrive, you know, so it's a win-win for everyone. Right, right. Yeah, it's lowering the, the, the barrier to entry for your customers to reorder is something that is just so, so crucial. Yeah, yeah. Like one of the biggest shifts that we made was we used to do a daily pastry delivery service where we would deliver... Um, we had a shift that started at 3.30 in the morning and we would deliver, you know, pastries to um, restaurants and cafes. Um, but one, it's very hard to pay delivery people a living wage and keep the delivery fee low enough where it makes sense for a daily delivery for a client. Um, but also if a client has like a last minute 
order or someone wants catering, it's very difficult to manage that. So we switch to a model where we deliver frozen things that they can bake off in-house. So it gives them more control over their waste. They're more flexible, more agile. Um, and we only have to deliver once a week. So we're maintaining better product quality, allowing them to serve their customers better and doing so in a way um, that we don't have to stray from our values where we can't provide you know, living wages to those delivery drivers. And so a lot of our changes have been things like that where ah, you know, this is actually better for everyone involved. <laughs> right, right. It's a, a, a win, win, win. Yeah, because I'm sure it's, it would be so easy when you have that social mission, but you're looking at what do we need to do to survive financially? It's easy to start making sacrifices there. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, once you do that, there goes your social yeah. mission. Uh, I want to talk about the ways that you have, uh, basically about how, those changes are um, proving to, to kind of to, to pan out and then what you're looking forward to in 2021 here. Uh, but before we do, we're going to take a, a quick break. A quick word from our sponsor, inspired very directly by this podcast, my new company, Maker Day. Maker Day provides unforgettable remote group experiences led by the makers themselves. So think of a Zoom happy hour or wine tasting led by the winemaker herself or a chocolate experience that starts by tasting a flight of single origin dark chocolate and ends by hand rolling your own truffles led by the chocolatier and small business owner herself. We have kombucha, matcha, cocktails, Turkish coffee, improv, yoga, trivia, and more always, always, always led by the small business owners themselves. So not only do you and your whole group get amazing products sent directly to each participant, but you'll be inspired by the passion, expertise, and entrepreneurial spirit of the people leading your Zoom. Let our makers make your day with Maker Day. That's M-K-R-D-A-Y dot com. Maker Day. All right, Rachel, let's talk about what you are looking forward to most in 2021 and kind of what numerically, uh, if you had to forecast kind of what you're looking forward to. So what I'm looking forward to most is being able to bring my team members back and to show them all the changes that we've made. So based on things that we just didn't have the time or finances uh, to do before, um, because I think Sometimes we'll implement a new thing and I'll say, I cannot wait for XYZ person to see this. It's going to blow their mind. And sometimes I'll text someone like, I cannot wait until you're back so you, uh, so you can see this. Um, so does that and, mean that you're going to be bringing back most of the people, that most of your former staff, all of your staff? Um, so most of our production uh, staff from before. So the retail staff, um, we have a couple that did switch over. Um, to the manufacturing side, um, but all of the manufacturing staff um, will be working to bring back. Um, yeah, some of them have already, they want to come back now, but I, I don't have, we don't have enough business to right. give them a job that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so with some people, I just help them find other jobs so that I know that they're taken care of right now. And then once we have a job that, you know, is better than where they're at, then I'll ask them to come back. Um, so at the end of 2019 early 2020 you said you had i believe five full-time staff right and then were and then that was in addition to the retail mm -hmm. yeah uh, but the retail shut down so if we're trying to compare back to where we were as of uh the end of 2019 just uh just in terms of your manufacturing staff and delivery where are we now and where do we think we will be in let's say six months yeah, so right now, outside of myself, I have four part-time people uh, who are my family because we're working like outside of deliveries, we're working one week out of the month. And so like that's not a system that makes sense for anyone. So I wouldn't ask um, a former staff member to come back because that's very hard to fit around another job schedule. Um, although I have given people the option, but I am very aware that it did, you know it didn't make sense. Um, and so... By the end of the year, um, I expect that we'll uh, be back to six full-time um, people. Um, and then in terms of numbers, this year, I think we actually might finish up uh, a little lower 
um, than 2019, just because a lot of the business that we have uh, isn't slated to start until Labor Day or right after. Um, so I expect we'll have um, a great Q4, but until then, we're just working on making sure that we're ready um, for explosive growth, that we can manage it without it being um, an undue burden on anyone, um, that we can maintain actual work-life balance. Uh, one of my goals for the company is that we become efficient enough that people can earn a full-time wage at 35 hours a week. Um, and my stretch goal is to one day get that down to 30 hours a week because we really don't give people enough time to work and then to live. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so by the time you take care of like your bare necessities, you don't have any time for restoration. And that does not actually serve my employees well. And so if my employees are better taken care of, they tend to be better employees. Um, but yeah, so those are some of the things that we're hoping to see in the future. It's weird that, and weird is just sort of a placeholder word, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's weird that your approach to treating your employees as humans is something that's almost counterintuitive within our culture. And that's something that could be a whole subject of a of a whole other podcast. Absolutely. <laughs> but I I just I just want to take a minute and like applaud that. Um, it's time now for a, a segment that I call Kaylin's questions. And Kaylin is our amazing researcher, and she always has a, a couple of uh, very poignant questions. The first one I think we already sort of touched on, which was um, basically what was it like mentally for you, kind of having that going straight from collapsed ceiling into pandemic. Um, but the the second question there was or the the follow up question is what what sort of kept you motivated and going through through that year despite all of the obstacles and what piece of advice might you have for other businesses that either were struggling or face future struggles like that? Um, so the answer to that is that I did not stay motivated through the entire year. Um, the motivation came back uh, towards the end of twenty twenty. But for most of uh, 2020, I was, or for about half of it, I was just struggling to keep my head above water. And mm -hmm. so that's where I was. Um, but the advice I would give is to make sure you have a strong support team. I don't think that we uh, really talk enough as entrepreneurs about holistic self-care, um, that self-care isn't just, you know, a meditation app, although that's great. Like self-care for entrepreneurs means that you know, maybe you need to be more proactive about exercising um, or that you need to have, um, like there are business therapists who are there to help you work through these things and also help you maybe avoid mistakes like tying your entire identity to, uh, to your company, which is so maybe. common. Right. Um, right. <laughs> uh, having those healthier mindsets and more uh, better coping mechanisms. Um, but I think the biggest piece of advice would be, um, encouraging people to be trans, um, transparent um, and vulnerable, because I think a lot of people struggled in 2020 because they weren't willing to tell people how bad things were because they thought that that was a reflection on them personally. And that just makes everything heavier um, when you're able to tell people like, hey, this sucks, it's terrible, and this is what's going on. It's actually pretty freeing um, and help shows up in places you would have never expected to ask. Right. And Kaylin's last question here, she wants to know about because of your because of your social mission to combat kind of uh, what are what tend to be kind of chronically unemployed populations um, by hiring them to be part of your staff. Was the impact on them because they have like generally inherently lesser safety nets? Um, would you say that though that your employees were affected by your temporary closing more so? Then, um, do you think that they have like fewer options, limited options? Uh, what 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 was the impact on them relative? You think to the the general population? Um, yeah, it was absolutely worse. Um, and I guess, and I guess to, to follow on that, and what what does that say about the importance of reintegrating those populations into society? Yeah, that was something that even though it was you know part of our state admission, I didn't really appreciate um, that part of our impact. Um, when we had people who were working for us full time, we never had someone um, like, get in trouble where, you know, they were facing jail time or something like that again. Um, and that did happen when we were closed. Um, 
a couple times. Uh, yeah, and so I did wrestle with some guilt about that because I was like, you know, well, if I found a way to stay open, then maybe this wouldn't have happened. Um, but I think I'm have a much healthier perspective about it now. It just reinforces that this work is important um, and it does matter. Uh, and I think that that was part of what helped to kind of kickstart the motivation because it was like, okay, this is not my identity. It's not who I am, but there are some really powerful reasons to get back out here um, and do this. Um, having our customers, you know, checking in on us. And then um, even throughout everything, I maintained like a pretty good relationship with a lot of our team members. Um, so even though we were closed, um, like we still saw, uh, we still, you know, saw some of them. So I think that those factors are kind of what gave me the the bump after I yeah. you know, got back to a healthy place. Like gave you the hey, bump after you got over your house. Uh, it might be time to, to give this another shot. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's a great way to segue into the, um, into the, the, a project that, that you're working on the economic justice initiative. Do mm -hmm. you want to uh, talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so I started the economic justice Academy in, um, the fall of last year. Uh, and it kind of came from some work that I always wanted to do with my employees. Um, years ago, I had a financial literacy nonprofit that I started with a friend. Um, and our thought naively was that we could uh, address income inequality by having financial literacy seminars in underserved neighborhoods in Chicago. And that if we just showed up and gave people knowledge, then their lives would you know, be better. Uh, that is not what, <laughs> what happened. Um, and so I'd always wanted to do this with my employees where we had like an intensive wealth building program, um, especially because we want to do this employee owned conversion because I wanna see, okay, where were they before and how much wealth did this conversion actually generate? Because I think that that's a, a powerful case study to encourage other companies to do the same um, because it's tax, it has tax advantages for the owner and then significant advantages for the community. Um, and so the EJA is uh, where I, I do workshops and seminars, but the crux of it is a 12 month um, hands-on uh, financial empowerment program where we actually help people with everything from, if you don't have a bank account, setting that up to um, crafting the right investment strategy, um, getting your legal uh, plan in place um, as it comes to your financial planning. So like the entire spectrum and the goal is to um, intentionally build black wealth, um, black and brown wealth to close the racial uh, wealth gap. Uh, the program is open to all people, but we'll be measuring specifically um, that wealth because uh, rising or increasing income inequality uh, is a really powerful destabilizing force mm -hmm. for societies. And I don't think we talk about that enough. And so um, in my mind, both of these projects are kind of uh, divisions of the same thing, that my overall goal is that I want to intentionally build wealth in neighborhoods where that has not been the case and for populations of people um, that that has definitely not been the case. And so both of these uh, companies uh, work to achieve that goal. Right. And by doing all of that, you're, you're stabilizing individuals, the communities, the companies, it's better for, you know, for the companies right. to have it. Yeah. Basically just better across the board. Um, exactly. and one last thing about the EJA, uh, it, it is a for-profit company, correct? Yes. Um, so one of my big things is that I, after that one in, uh, kind of segue into the nonprofit world, I don't really believe in nonprofits as tools for change. There's some inherent limitations. Um, and, there's no reason why businesses can't be um, profitable while making an impact. It doesn't actually serve anyone well uh, for me to kind of wait for people to give me money to achieve the goal that I want to achieve when we can do that by creating programming um, that makes money while helping people. Right. And you're also leading by example, essentially. Right. Well, th this... <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. Usually I, I, well, I feel like I just learned so much like this whole time. Like, like I felt like I just got like a one-on-one, -on -one, um, I don't know, insight, not a, not a, a lecture, but a lecture in like the best possible way, like with your favorite professor, essentially. Oh, so I, I, yeah. I mean, I knew coming into this based off of our pre 
prior conversations that there wasn't going to be any shortage of topics to to cover because you and I have had some lengthy conversations already. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this. And, um, and first of all, my first thing on my to-do list for the day is to buy some cookies, uh, from you. <laughs> and if our listeners want to do that, what is the best way for them to get their hands on some tasty treats and to support you? Yeah, they can um, head over to www.lanes and lanes is L-A-I-N-E-S bakeshop.com. We have um, cookies and brownies for sale. Uh, we also have rum cakes, um, but our brownies right now are uh, have been our fastest moving items. So we have our classic, a walnut, a Mexican hot chocolate, which is my favorite, and a red velvet cheesecake brownie. Um, two of those are sold out right now, so they'll be restocked next week. Uh, but yeah, those are great places to start. And you can also uh, follow us on social media at Lane's Bake Shop or sign up for our email newsletter to find out uh, all the latest things that are happening uh, with Lane's. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing your story, uh, sharing about all the different projects you're working on. And I'm I'm looking forward to A, my cookies arriving and well, or red velvet cheesecake brownies arriving and then B, having you back on in, in a year or so and hearing about uh, all the progress you've made both financially and uh, making an impact in your community. That sounds great. Thanks so much for having me, Grant. Thank you to my guest, Rachel Bernier-Green of Lane's Bake Shop. Make a big difference by shopping small and grab some mouthwateringly decadent cookies and brownies at lanesbakeshop.com. I recommend the Red Velvet Cheesecake Brownie. Time now for my unsponsor, aka a small business doing everything right. They don't pay for a shout out. Heck, they don't even know it's coming, but they deserve one. So today's show was not brought to you by Golden Maid Cafe. That's cafe with a K. Golden Maid Cafe brings high quality and exclusive coffee blends with American, French, and African cultural influence. Available in retail bags, K-cups, and Nespresso pods, Golden Maid Cafe Coffee uses quality, robusta green beans from the country of Gabon in West Central Africa. Oh, and a little bonus, 10% of all sales go to Develop Africa and Water.org, helping to bring educational opportunities, access to clean water, and better sanitation. Order coffee today from Golden Ca GoldenMadeCafe.com, and that's cafe with a K. We got to go quick, but no one listens to this part anyway. So speaking of shopping small, check out SmallBizGoneViral.com for a rapidly growing list of unsponsors and the small businesses run by our guests. There are now over 100 businesses listed that you've probably never heard of, but guaranteed will be impressed by. So vote with your wallet for the world you want to live in and shop small. Thank you, Peggy Bunker and the Bunkmates, Worldometer, NPR, Robinhood Snack, and Morning Brew Daily News emails, <gasps> Statista, and my wonderful researcher, Kaylin Kwan. Someday this will all be over. Until then, fight the fatigue, wear a mask, get immunized if you can. From an office in North Pacific Beach, recorded and edited before and after work hours, I'm Graham Bone. This is Small Business on Viral. And we're back, as always, with our quick bonus lightning round. Four quick questions for you, Rachel. Question number one. How do you feel when someone who you've known for a long time asks about the status and progress of your company? So these days I feel much better about it um, because I've been working on being more vulnerable in this area. Previously, especially like during COVID, that really stressed me out because I tied the um, success of the business to my value as a person. And so I didn't really want to tell people if we weren't doing well. But now that I'm working on being more vulnerable and I just tell people, hey, this is what it is. Um, it's very freeing. And I found that uh, help often shows up in places where I never had expected um, to ask as a result of being more transparent. Question number two, what is something you feel non-small business owners have a hard time relating to about your work stresses? I don't think it's possible to get the normity of those stresses because if I make a mistake, it doesn't just impact a performance review. It actually can impact um, the livelihood of my team members. And so uh, that's just a lot of weight to carry sometimes. What are some common uh, misconceptions about your business? Um, the first would be that I have no boss and I don't have to answer to anyone because that's not true. <laughs> um, but also a lot of times people say, oh, well, I love baking at home. So I really want to open a bakery. And I've talked quite a few people out of uh, opening a bakery for that reason. Um, my job is much more manufacturing operations and finance 
than it is, you know, baking two dozen cookies at your, in your kitchen at home. Right. Last question, because this is a happy show, <laughs> theoretically. What are your favorite parts about being an entrepreneur? What are some of the biggest upsides? So uh, for me, the biggest upside is that I get to um, build things that are impactful. I get to actually solve challenges. Uh, I used to get frustrated in previous jobs because sometimes I would run into something um, and I'm like, this is really toxic or this doesn't make any sense or this is really frustrating. And now I can actually do something about those things, whether it's a problem in society that I see that I'm trying to address or just in making a healthier workplace. Um, and I really love creating systems that do both of those things. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for the work that you're doing to make the world a better place through a commercially viable company that sets the bar so high for all the other entrepreneurs in the world, myself included, showing that you can make a dollar while making a difference. I'm so excited to have you back on in a year and hear about all of the ways that you have made huge strides and made a big impact, both commercially and socially. So thank you. Thank you so, so much for having me. This was a blast and I am uh, looking forward to our continued conversations offline. Mm -hmm.